0: Matthew chapter 7 marks the final lap in our journey through this great sermon called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus attacks what I've called veneer religion. That kind of religion that has a picture of righteousness, but when you pull it back you see that it's just a fraud, it's just a sham, it's just a picture, it's not real and substantive. Last week we looked at the subject of judging And we saw that Jesus calls us to balance um, sinful judgmentalism with wise discernment. And in three weeks from now, on October 4th, we'll launch into a new section in the book of Matthew when we look at chapters 8 through 10, and this will take us all the way through the missions conference right up until Christmas, and then we'll start a new section uh, beginning uh, around the first of the year. And this next section that we'll be talking about in Matthew 8 through 10 is what does it mean to follow Jesus? So we're going to see him in his miracles, in the first things that he does in terms of healing, and we'll also begin to see an emerging opposition on the part of the Pharisees. Now next week we will conclude our study in the Sermon on the Mount called Get Real with a message entitled, Only a Few Are Truly Saved. We're going to look at some hard-hitting texts about wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to life and few there be that find it. And what does that mean? And then the following week after that we're going to Talk about the subject of believer 's baptism. The reason is is that about nine months ago, um, we told you as elders that we were in the process of talking and praying through um, our understanding of believers baptism its importance as it relates to our church and especially since we've had so many new people become a part of the fellowship here at college park i want to be sure that you understand what believers baptism is why it's important and also talk about some of the the marginal issues surrounding this important subject and so that's why my rather provocative title is everyone should be baptized in some again and so that'll be a good um, discussion point for us to Think about and pray about as a church on the 27th. So that's where we've been and where we're going. The question is, where are we at today? Interestingly, we're at a particular passage of scripture that I find curious that Jesus put in here. The reason it's curious is because just before this section is a really hard hitting section on judging. Don't judge lest you be judged. And then after this section is another hard-hitting subject about the issue of who's really saved. And two roads, two paths, a wide gate, an narrow gate, only if you are truly saved. And, and those two sections are, are, are tough and rough. And some of you, you, you like text like that. I, you talk to me afterwards. You come up and you're like, I love it when you step on my toes. I love it. I love it when you take a baseball bat and like, bang, wake up. You just love that. And some of you are a little different that way, but that's okay. If if, if the Bible was like that all the time, it would be, you know, hard and it would be caustic. And so the Bible balances out those hard hitting Sundays with soft and encouraging words. And that's what we have here. So it's interesting to me that Jesus talks about this encouraging text of what it means for us to pray and how it is that He's going to motivate us to pray. The message in Matthew 7. Verses 7-11 to is not direct, it's not convicting. Sometimes the Bible aims to wake us up by strong, direct words, and other times the Bible helps us to move along by lavish encouragement. And such is the case with our passage this morning. The encouragement that is here is frankly breathtaking. Jesus aims to motivate his people to pray. The question is, how do you do that? You could motivate them by saying, you self-centered, self-dependent, godless people, get on your knees and pray. That's one way you could do it. And that would be true, and in some cases might be the right way to do it. But in this case, Jesus does it differently. Instead of a hard-hitting tone, he uses this beautiful encouragement that takes us into the very heart of what the Father is all about. He, he uses this This passage to remind us of the depth of the Father's love. In fact, you could boil down everything I'm going to say today with this uh, very simple statement. It is that we would bank your prayer life on God's love for you. If you're taking notes, that's the statement that you need to write down, kids. That would be the thing. If you want to know what today's about, that's it, right there. Bank your prayer life on God's love for you. That it is that Jesus is calling for us to be persistent. But he's not calling us to be persistent for persistence' sake. He's not calling us like the widow when he says to keep, keep knocking and because of her persistence he will answer. No, rather the equation here that Jesus is using or the end game that he's trying to get us to is to call his disciples to pray because of, listen carefully, the robust nature of God's love for them. It's as though Jesus wants us to see the beautiful reality of the Father's love and in so doing out of this lavish display of the Father's love that we would then be motivated to get on our knees and say, I am here because I know you love me. I'm not here for guilt. I'm not here because I have to be. I am here because you love me and you tell me if I ask, I'll receive. If I seek, I'll find. If I knock, it'll be open. So I'm here and I'm taking you at your word today. Now, the critical phrase for this entire text is found in verse 11. It needs to be underlined in your Bible. It's, it's that important. It says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, th- three words, how much more? Th- that's, that's it right there. Three words. How much more will, you, will, you, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Jesus is going to motivate us to pray By the, here's, I can create a word, the how much moreness of God. He's going to motivate us to pray by giving us God centered encouragement about the how much moreness of His love. So Jesus in this passage gives us three reasons to pray. The first in verses seven to eight is because it works, the second is because it makes sense in verses nine and ten. And then in verse 11, he calls us to pray, here's the how much moreness, because your Father's love is great. So, let's look at each of these. First, he calls us to pray because it works. Now, the the passage has an interesting outline or an interesting setup, and and when you're reading the Bible and there's like a long paragraph or, or things that seem to be repetitive, it's helpful to take them and kind of outline them. And maybe you don't want to necessarily outline the actual language, but to outline the thought. What's the main thought? What's the subordinate thought? And those of you who are grammar and English teachers, we are really grateful for you because you help us to read our Bibles. Okay? So if your kids are like, why do I have to read English? Why do I have to study grammar? Answer, so you can read the Bible and go to heaven. That's why. Okay? So (laughs) it's really important. If you don't know your grammar, you're going to go to hell. So that'll motivate you. All right? So just kidding. So here it is. So, ask and it will be given to you, that's the first little phrase, and then seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. So notice that all three of those, they support a main thought, and there's three different thoughts gathered together. Ask and then an answer, it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. All right, but then notice it goes on and it says the exact same thing, but in a different way. And the Bible frequently does this in order to make a point. When the Bible wants to make a point, it repeats it, and in some cases over and over. What we have here are three different promises that are given to us two different times. So you got two sets of threes. For everyone who asks, receives. That goes back up to the ask. The one who seeks, finds. That's up to the second one. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So what Jesus is showing us here is that there are these three commands. Ask, seek, and knock. And then there are these six promises um, it will be given to you. You will find. The door will be open. You'll receive. You'll find. The one who knocks, it will be opened. He says the same thing in two different ways. The reason he does all of this is to make one very important point. The one point about all six of those statements is this, that prayer is answered. The reason that he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek, knock, everyone who asks, receives, seeks, finds, knocks, opens. The reason he says all of that is simply to make one very critical point. Prayer is answered. In other words, ask, seek, and knock, they all refer to prayer. Sometimes people try and make a big distinction between them, and I don't think you really can. I think Jesus is meaning that there's three different expressions of prayer. Maybe he means increasing in intensity. That, that could be. Like you're asking, and then you're seeking, and then you're knocking. Like there's an elevation. But I think his main point here is just simply that he calls us to pray. In fact, the tense of the words, ask, seek, and knock, are all present imperative. What does that mean? It means that it's a command, it's an imperative. Jesus calls us to pray, and in the present tense means that it's to be habitually, continually. So you could translate it, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Our part is... In regards to prayer, the habitual communication with God, the sense that we're constantly coming to Him over and over and over. Jesus is commanding this habitual practice of prayer over and over and over. God's part is expressed with the six promises that are in the future tense and some of them in the passive tense, meaning that these are things that God will do in the future, that if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be opened. The the promises are future-oriented, meaning that God is the one who's going to have to perform them. He's the one that's going to have to answer the prayer. So it's pretty simple. Disciples, us, are responsible to be asking, and God is the one who is responsible for the answering. What is striking here is the fact that Jesus seems unconcerned about any level of misunderstanding with what he means or the implications of what he's just said. In other words, you could take this and think that you got a blank check from God. There, there's no fine print, there's no little qualification, there, there's no other little statement that qualifies what he said. It's not like the credit card offer that you get in the mail, right? Or... Um, an American Express offer for a free ticket. And then you open up, you're like, oh, I see how you give giving me the free ticket. That's right, okay, I see. Reading all the fine print, you can see it on the back side. Or at the end of these, all, these medication commercials where you have this person for you know, 15 seconds telling you about everything that could go wrong with you if you bought their product, they just tried to sell you, right? Um, it, it, no qualifications like that. No, Jesus just says it without any concern for potential abuse. One, one commentary said this, the promises are astonishingly open ended. Whatever this passage, whenever this passage is read with simple faith, it will take one's breath away. Six different times in six different ways, Jesus almost begs us to pray and promises solemnly that simple asking receives, simple seeking finds, and simple knocking opens. Now, certainly this doesn't mean that Jesus has given us a blank check, that we can just name this verse and claim whatever we want, right? So before you're thinking, oh, sweet, Lord, right now, a million dollars, give it to me. Or, Lord, right now, Ruth's Chris Steak in my freezer, Lord, make it happen. Or, God, as I'm walking out to the parking lot, Colts tickets for today's game in the parking lot, let me find them. So before you start taking that interpretation, that's not what's intended. But the question is, what is it? why does Jesus say it like this? Here's why. It's really important. The reason is that Jesus is concerned about a really important problem as it relates to our prayer life. And it's not that he's so concerned we're going to abuse this command. Instead, he's more concerned that we have a lack of faith. The reason why he doesn't qualify it Is because Jesus knows that there's a a bigger problem in our lives than a blank check mentality. The bigger problem is prayerlessness because of a lack of belief. Because of a lack of faith. Because of a lack of trust. I mean, if we're honest, we're often guilty of prayerlessness because we lose hope. We get discouraged. We think it's pointless. And so we just simply fail to talk to God about it anymore. We've been praying and praying and praying and finally we're just like, you know, what's the use anymore? It's just not gonna happen. My son's heart's always gonna be hard. My spouse is always gonna wander. I'm always gonna be infertile. I'm just gonna die. Why pray? And so we have this mentality where a lack of faith begins to corrode and erode our sense of what prayer is all about. So what happens is that life goes on, burdens come, challenges approach, and our tendency is often to talk to everyone but God about the issue at hand. We we talk to a friend, we buy a book, we listen to a message, we seek counseling, and we talk to ourselves. But we are tragically silent when it comes to talking to God. And Jesus wants to tell you, talk to him. Talk to him, keep asking him, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't just go about your life with these burdens that you're carrying and laying at at night worrying and fretting over what's going to happen or figuring all these ways to, to, to figure things out and work your plan and figure it out and your strategic goals for your life or figure out how to be able to get into the heart of that kid. He says, look, enough books, enough talking, enough counseling. Why don't we get on our face and seek the one who's got real power and real authority? That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to believe. And the way that he motivates us is not to shame us, but rather to explode the beauty of God's love in front of us. To be able to show us how much more your Heavenly Father loves to give to those who ask him. So Jesus calls us to pray. And he motivates us. He calls us to have faith. He calls us to believe He calls us like the man that Jesus meets in the New Testament when he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. (laughs) So two thoughts come to mind when I think of this text and where we live. The first is that I can only imagine that there are many people, many of you live as though practically God doesn't even exist. I mean, candidly, your communication with God is so sporadic if I could use a word picture, you view God sort of like that emergency brake on the train. That little red lever that when the things are going too fast or a tragedy is about ready to happen, you pull the brake, <laughs> stop, wait! Or maybe you, you view God, in terms of prayer, more like an airbag in your car. You know it's there. And man, you're really grateful when you get in a wreck that it shows up. But... Day in and day out, you don't think about the airbag. You don't talk about your airbag. You're not like, hey, dude, come here, check out my airbag in my car. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not living that way. And you don't really use it unless a, an accident happens. And I don't want to press the analogy too far, but Jesus wants us to see that prayer is not a safety feature in your life. Prayer is the fuel that's supposed to drive your life. So instead of thinking of it like an airbag, think of it like the gas pedal. Prayer is the thing, you put your foot on that, that your life begins to take momentum and action. So don't be calling up a a car repairman, my car won't work, what's wrong? I'm, I'm pushing the airbag and nothing's happening, it's not moving forward. He would tell you, try putting your foot on the gas, right? So put your foot on the gas, that will help your vehicle to, to, to move forward. That an airbag mentality would be, I'm just in this prayer thing for when I need you in the midst of an emergency, when my life is coming to a train wreck, and Jesus instead is calling us to realize that prayer is the fuel that drives the Christian faith. Prayer is the thing that causes movement. Prayer is the thing that causes the church of the living God to be filled with life. One of the reasons that prayer is so important is because without prayer, the church doesn't move. Well, oh, there may be buildings, there may be people, there, there may be programs, but without prayer, those things just become empty shelves of human creations. But when God's people pray, He pours out His blessings and their things that they do are now filled with power and energy, movement from the living God. He loves to empower the things that we do, but He will not do that if His people do not pray. He won't do that for a church He won't do that for a family. He won't do that for a person. In fact, I believe God often hinders our forward movement because He values more our praying than He does our success. So prayer is the gas pedal of forward movement. Prayer works. The second thing that comes to mind is that I can imagine that there are other people who are here and you've stopped praying and you need faith to start praying again. And candidly, you've prayed for a long time, and you're just weary. You just feel like, you know what? I don't, I don't think God's going to answer. Or maybe, maybe you're, the answer that you've received is such that you just are frankly upset and angry that this is the answer. This is what you're going to give me, and so therefore there's no prayer. You just you just shut it off. You've given up hope. And, and if I could take some of you today and just Speak loving how much moreness of God words into your heart. I, I just want you to leave today with a sense of, you know what? I'm going to start praying about that again. A, a wayward son, a hard-hearted teenager, a drug-addicted friend, a wandering spouse, a, a body-consumed daughter. These things require faith to say, Lord, you know where my son is. Get him. I can't get into the heart of my kids. Would you get in there? An uncertain future. Financial needs that are pressing. Unemployment benefits that are going to run out. An account at work that you just lost. A home that won't sell. An infertile womb. These are the pains that many of us know. That tests the boundaries of will we believe and will we say, God, I will have faith that you hear and want to answer, that if I ask, I will receive, if I seek, it will find, if I knock, it will be open. These could become, these, these hardships, these, these pains, these challenges, these could become the platforms for amazing God-centered worship instead of the trophy of how mean God is to you. And so my burden today is to call you to see that the Scriptures are exactly right. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in Him. So Jesus bids us to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. He calls us to pray because prayer works. It's the fuel that drives the Christian faith. And it may be that the reason that you're here today is because God wants to ignite within you a renewed passion to seek Him. For that which you used to seek Him but have stopped recently. Or because you're in the middle of the valley of prayer and you're just like, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? And this passage is for you today to say, yes, He hears you. He hears you. Just keep praying. The second thing that Jesus tells us is to pray because it makes sense. Now, he makes a comparison from the lesser to the greater, from earth, us, to God, our Father, in heaven. And then he comes and completes it with, in full picture, in verses 10 and 11. Now the point here is almost so obvious I kind of struggle even walking you through it, but you're here, so let's talk about it. Verse 8, verse 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, then verse 9, Or which of you, if his son asks for him bread, we'll give him a stone or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. So the point is, is rather simple, that Jesus says that parents instinctively want to give their children what is good. That's normal. It's not normal for a parent to play a trick on their kid and give them gravel in their Cheerios. That's not normal. If you're doing that, stop it, Okay? <laughs> For, for a child to ask his parents for a piece of bread only to discover that it's a stone or to ask for a fish only to be given a snake is cruel and unkind. Duh. I mean, it just makes sense, right? In Jesus' time, a a stone could look like a loaf of bread. You know, in ours, that would be a really strange-looking loaf, like Wonder Bread. They don't make stones like looking like that. But this would be a stone that would look like a piece of bread would. Or, in his day, there were certain types of serpents that looked like a fish. And so the idea here, and the problem, is the deception. That a child says, Daddy, will you give me a piece of bread? And he hands him a stone. He says, will you give me a fish? And he hands him a snake. And... On the one hand, it's useless because bread instead of a stone, or a stone instead of bread is useless. And the other point, it's dangerous. For that matter, who wants to eat snake anyways? So there's a sense of that this is cruel and unkind. And it's as though Jesus wants us to see that it's unthinkable and not normal for a parent to be like that. It's just, it's not natural. Now his point will come to full picture in verses 10 and 11, but what I want you just to see here right now is that we ought to pray because it makes sense that God as our Father would not respond with useless or harmful answers. He tells us to keep asking the Father because it's natural for a father to want to be good to his children. A couple weeks ago, I heard a story from James McDonald about um, something that he and his wife did a number of years ago to their kids on April Fool's Day, and he, like I, really like April Fool's Day. It's just kind of a fun day, and, but you have to be careful with it, and um, so uh, what they did was uh, he and his wife, uh, while the kids were all asleep, uh, set all of the alarms back an hour, and um, then when the time for school came, they ran upstairs and they woke their kids up as if they were late for school. And they, they knocked on the door and said, hey, come on, come on, we're late for school, come on. So the kids are like, what, what? Oh, the alarm didn't go off. Oh, no, it's late. Little did they know they're an hour early. And so they're getting ready for school, they're brushing their teeth, getting their hair all set, and they jump in the car, they take off, they head to the school, and they pull up, and there's nobody there. <laughs> and then they're like, April Fool's! <laughs> And then he said, and then we go out to breakfast. Now that makes it fun, right? But but imagine what would happen if they didn't go out to breakfast and they just dropped them off. April Fool's! <laughs> and those kids are standing there as they're driving off going, ha, 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 And they're like, hey, hey, they'll like, see you. And he and his wife are high-fiving each other. Isn't this fun? I mean, that is that is not cool. That's cruel. That's unkind. Don't do that. Don't put gravel in your kids' cereal. Don't wake them up and then not take them to breakfast if you give them up an hour early. The, the point is obvious that it's good for parents to do good to their children. You see something on the news about a parent who's neglected their kids. There's like rat um, droppings all over the place and there's dogs running around the house and these kids aren't taken care of. I don't know about you, but I look at the television. I'm just like, that is not normal for a parent to be like that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, this is where, if some of you are honest, you have a problem. Let me speak to something here. Because, candidly, your childhood was marked by cruelty, deception, uncertainty, fear, abuse. So, you you grew up in a home where you couldn't trust your parents, and maybe even specifically your dad, you, you you never knew if he had your best interest in mind. So to hear this, that God is called your father, and to use the analogy of an earthly father and connect that to heavenly father for you just has enormous problems. And it may affect even how you pray. And while there's a bunch of things I would like to be able to say to you, About this particular issue, can I just tell you two things? Number one, despite what your dad or mom told you, it's not normal for a mom or a dad to be that way. It's not right. And the second thing, and this is glorious, listen to me carefully, and you just have to believe this, God is not like your dad. Even the best dad in the world, God isn't like your dad. But even the worst one in all the world, hear me, your heavenly father is not like your dad he is always good and always kind you never need to question his motives you never need to wonder what he's up to or if he's got a double agenda or if he's really interested in his own interests versus your own he's never abusive he's never mean he's never unkind he's never untoward he is always full in fact the bible says how much more he is full of love Jesus is saying that loving relationships are supposed to produce good gifts. That's how it's supposed to be. And your Heavenly Father operates in the same way, but so much more so. An infinitely good God is going to do infinitely good things. It just makes sense that God is this way, and that means that everything that comes into your life, you never, ever, ever need to question, is this good from you? Even the hardest valley, the most difficult pains, even death itself is all under the umbrella of a sovereign God who never does anything that isn't loving and kind and good. And you have to just grab a hold of that and believe that and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. It just makes sense that God would be this way. Last reason to pray is because your Father loves you. Remember the words I told you at the beginning of the message that are key to understanding this passage? Remember? Folks in worship too, you remember? It's how much more. That, remember verse 11. How much more. It should be underlined in your Bible by now. How much more. Jesus is calling us to pray not only because it works and because it makes sense, but he shows us that you are not, listen, you are not a fool to keep asking and to keep seeking and to keep knocking. Why? Why are you not a fool to keep doing this? Because the Father loves us and we are to bank our prayer life on the how much moreness of the love of God. Verse 10, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? So he says, earthly fathers give their children what is good, and earthly fathers are evil. They're sinful, they're depraved in comparison to God. And what he's saying here is that God is infinitely better than earthly parents. So it makes sense that if sinful, depraved, and self-centered parents are inclined to give good things to their children, then what do you think a holy, righteous, majestically kind, and all-powerful God is going to do? The much moreness of God motivates us to do much more asking and much more seeking and much more knocking. This is, this is the second breathtaking statement about prayer. The first one was this idea that he makes this statement without any qualification. And you should read that and just go, "What? what? Ask and I'll receive? Okay. I'll keep asking. The second breathtaking statement is the depth of the Father's love. This, how much moreness of God in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So here we have the ground of all praying, which is the Father's love. The depth of his love, this divine love, so infinite, so vast, so beautiful, so profound, that it boggles the mind that you look at the text and you see what it says about God's affection for you, and you know who you are, and you know how, how insignificant you are, you know the reality of your own sin, and yet God sets His love on you, and it boggles the mind, and out of the overflow of that loving moment, as you get the beauty of God's love, that is when you are most motivated to say, okay, so I'm going to keep coming, I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep knocking. It's the kind of love that says, on one hand, unbelievable that you love me this way, and on the other, instantly motivates you to pray with God-centered faith and trust. There is no better example of the much moreness of God, no better motivation for us to pray, no better example of the way in which God's love and His gift is lavished upon us than that of the cross. You see, what happens is the loving gift of Christ becomes the ground of real faith and becomes the ground of real hope and real belief. So here's the deal. That means that you have to know the gospel and know the cross and not separate your prayer life and and, and the faith that you have in Jesus from the reality of what it means to pray and to seek His face so there needs to be this constant connection between what happened at the cross and your motivation to be able to seek god in prayer example listen for the connection between three concepts in these verses god's gift god's love and his son listen john 3:16 for god so loved the world that he next word gave he gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It could be that the reason that you're here today is not just about prayer, it is to make that verse live in your heart. that you know that those who believe in Christ will have their sins forgiven and have eternal life, but the ground of that giving is God's love. Second verse, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude 20, 21. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves, listen, in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's one passage, though, that more than any other passage, just nails it. You need to look at this in your Bible. Look at Romans eight and verse thirty-one. A familiar passage, no doubt, but you, you have to see this because the, the the argument is so similar from Matthew seven that there is this deep connection between God's love and His graciousness, and most evidence to us in Christ. See it through this lens. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? <laughs> nobody. I mean, that's beautiful, right there. You can live all day long on that thought. If God is for me, ain't nobody going to touch me. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see it? It's the same thing. Read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not he with him also give us freely all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes, is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who what loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord the implication of that passage is if God has been gracious to us in the cross, in the giving of His own Son, will He not then freely give us all things? Jesus aims to motivate us, to seek and to ask and to knock, to keep praying, to keep seeking and to keep knocking by the profoundly amazing love of God, most evidenced, most clearly evidenced in the giving of His own Son. The cross shows us the how much moreness of God's love. It's breathtaking and it's meant to motivate us to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. Jesus calls us to expect good things from God, not because we're selfish or because we're demanding. No, the Father's never going to give you something that's bad for you or just to fulfill your sinful desires. He tells us to expect good things from God because it's what God is like. He tells us to expect good things from God because it's what He has shown us most gloriously in the gift of His own Son. He tells us to expect good things from Him because He tells us He wants to give us good things. And therefore we are to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking, believing that one day He will answer. And when you're on your knees and you're praying and you have this sinful thought that comes through your head, and who knows if it comes from the flesh or the devil, but it's this thought, what are you doing here praying about this still? What are you doing here? Why are you on your knees seeking Him? You answer that thought with this gloriously beautiful reality from the Scriptures that I know whom I have believed in. You answer that fleeting, wicked thought of, this is foolish, I just keep asking and asking and asking and seeking. I keep pleading with you and knocking, and he doesn't even answer, doesn't even hear. You fight away that thought with the reality that Jesus says, keep asking, you will receive. Keep seeking, you will find. Keep knocking, it will be open. And you, by faith, say to your God, I know that you love me, I know that I treasure you above all things, and your Son was the ultimate gift of of my atonement, and therefore I bank my life on your love for me you drag your weary heart back to the cross and you point your face to that cross and say look believe pray seek he's been like this he will continue to be gracious even if he doesn't always make sense prayer works it makes sense it is rooted rooted in God's love so to those of you who are weary and discouraged those of you who are burdened or you have faith that's starting to waver I want to take you back to the cross and remind you this is what God is like there can be no greater example there can be no greater display of his infinite love for you so Pray, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep believing God, you know where our son is, find him and get his heart You know what's going inside of our daughter's heart and mind God, we we can't, there's nothing we can do, but you can The doctors have given this prognosis, but Lord, we know you're the great healer Come, help This womb is infertile. The doctors have said there's no hope, but you're the life giver, God. Open it, please, for your glory. God, this job, it's going to end, and i got no no idea where I'm going to go from this point on, but you know, and so I can rest and trust. That kind of faith, rooted in the infinite love of God, is what Jesus aims to elevate. Joseph Scriven was a Christian man who knew pain. He lived in the 1800s, and the day before his wedding, his fiancée drowned. Can you imagine? A few years later, he relocated to Canada, fell in love again, but his fiancée, this one, died from pneumonia. His mother lived across the ocean in his homeland of Ireland and she was terribly ill, and Joseph didn't have enough money to go and visit her, so instead he wrote her a poem called Pray Without Ceasing. And in 1868, a musician named Charles Converse found Scriven's poem and set his poem Pray Without Ceasing to music. And this is what he gave us. What... A friend we have in Jesus. Sing it with me. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. Notice the third verse. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. There are some of you here today that that third verse describes you. There's no peace. There's all sorts of extra burden. You're carrying a ton of extra weight on your shoulders and you were never meant to walk that path like you are. Instead, Jesus calls you to understand this. The much moreness of God's love demands that you keep seeking, keep knocking, and keep praying, that you bank your prayer life on the love, the much moreness of God's love. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, I want you to be reminded that what we celebrate in this moment is the much moreness of God's love. And the reason we celebrate this is not just because of eternal salvation. That's part of it. But it is that that cross becomes the living reality today. And as you receive the elements, that you would, by the virtue of those elements, say to the Lord, because of this offering, I know of your love. And because of this love, I will keep seeking. And I will keep knocking. And I will keep asking. I will not give up. I will not relent. Because I know this love. And it is much, much more. So God help us to believe and to cling to this cross that has become not only our life, it becomes the means by which we are motivated to pray and to seek you. And so, Lord, I ask you in Jesus' name now to use this focused time of meditation, of consideration, of of looking at the reality of what you did in the person and work of Jesus to remind us that this great love has been bestowed upon us, that we would be called the sons of God. And therefore, because of that love, we can have faith to believe that when you tell us that he who asks receives, that we can bank our lives on that reality. So Lord, thank you for encouraging words that motivate us to seek you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask our men, they would come forward to serve us for the Time around the Lord's table. Inside your bulletin this morning, there's a little prayer card. It um, looks something like this. And as the men are distributing the elements, I'd like for you to take out that prayer card and put a date on it. And there may be one or two things that you just need to tell the Lord this morning, I am going to pray about this, and I want you to take this and put this somewhere. And it may very well be. In fact, I believe it will happen. But there will be many people that September the 13th, 2009, was a marker of when you began praying or you were remotivated to pray, and God was just simply waiting, almost as if He could say, Why didn't you ask? Because you have not, because you asked not. And I just got to think that if all of us began asking, the release of the resources of God upon His people would be much more than you and I could ever imagine, ask, or think. So Lord, use our time of reflection, our time of even by faith just saying, Lord, we will choose to believe that when you tell us to ask and that we will receive, that we can bank on that reality. Thank you for helping to increase the faith of our hearts. Thank you that without any sort of limitations or um, explanation, you just want our faith to be elevated so our prayer life could be what it's really designed to be. And so thank you for the cross, the ground of this faith that you want to elevate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.